Amen, and welcome again as we are wrapping up a series that we have been talking about since the beginning of the year called Science of the Soul. And this series has tried to help us do a couple things. One, it's tried to be informative about some of the latest findings in neuroscience, but what we want to make sure that we do is not just present to you like interesting scientific information, but to show you how this new information that we're gaining from neuroscience actually matches perfectly with the best of ancient Christian spirituality and wisdom. That there really is nothing new under the sun, just the ways that we know what we know uh, have, be- have changed over time. And so we have a different way to understand some of these things that we have been talking about and people of faith have been talking about for thousands of years. And one of the verses that we've kind of used to kind of frame this whole thing comes out of Paul's letter to the Romans. And maybe you're familiar with this. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is really kind of the thrust of this series, is what does transformation look like through the ways that we know how to renew our mind? And so kind of over the last several weeks, what we have tried to show is that the brain, when it is at its healthiest, And when our lives are at its fullest and richest, are integrated in a way that all of the different pieces of the brain work together, talk to one another, and reinforce the brains of the relationships that we have in our life. Yeah? So what we said from the beginning was that one of the best ways that we can begin to integrate our entire brain, all of the different parts from low to high, from left to right, all of the different components of our brain, the best way that we can begin to integrate that starts with being known and having a relationship with God. This begins to set the foundation and anchor us for ways that we can begin to know ourselves and to begin to know others. And then from that, we started to ask the question, are you paying attention to what you're paying attention to? And this idea that what we focus on really does inform our life together. It really does inform the type of person that we are and the type of person that we become. And there's all sorts of statistics that will make you kind of want to step out and breathe heavily into a bag because they're really concerning about how the devices in our pockets or are corrupting our ability to pay attention to the things that really matter. Then once we have some control over what we pay attention to, then we need to start thinking about and paying attention to the ways that our memories shape our future how some of the things that we respond to in the present moment are actually connected to situations, circumstances, and relationships that have these lingering kind of um, effects from our past. And so our memories really do sometimes shortcut and predict our responses and reactions to people in certain circumstances and situations. And so how do we begin to name our story, to tell our story, like the song says, so that we can begin to rewire our brains and have new awareness around the impact and the meaning of the stories that we have lived out and the stories that we get to live in the future. Now, from that place, once we have attention and uh, memory established, now we begin to kind of discuss what it looks like to get our arms around our emotions, the ways that we feel and the ways that we express those emotions and interact with the emotions of other people into our relationships and our attachment styles and the ways that we interact with one another based on our default wiring. 
Now, just a show of hands, if you were here last Sunday, how many of you have begun, even if imperfectly, to use some of the attachment style stuff in your relationships? Yeah, I've gotten a couple of emails about how interesting that was. I had one couple uh, circle back with me and they said, you know, for Valentine's Day, we decided to buy each other penalty flags that we would throw in the instance of kind of some relational kind of misstep. And I thought that was brilliant. I was like, God, why didn't I think? We could have just handed them out last Sunday. So in five years when we recycle all of this, I will remember to do that as well. And so today we're going to land the plane. So, so much of what we have been talking about over the last several weeks is the second half of this verse. What does it look like to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Now, Today, what I'm going to talk us through in our time together is just what is the pattern of the world that we should avoid conforming to? What is this pattern that if we're not intentional, if we don't integrate our minds well, if we're not mindful and pay attention to all of the different components of our brain and our life and our relationships, what is the pattern that we inevitably slip into? Now, this pattern is not a new pattern, and this pattern actually has existed from the beginning of humanity. And so when you kind of turn to the opening chapters of the opening book of Scripture, what you see is this description and this articulation of this pattern that humanity naturally devolves into. So let's jump into Genesis My guess is you've heard this story before, and there will be parts that sound familiar, but my hope will be that you'll hear something in a new way, and it'll stand out as we kind of close the loop on this whole thing. So, this is, once God has created Adam and Eve, man and woman, this is the end of the second chapter of Genesis and what it has to say about this couple. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. Now, it's interesting to me that they could have used any description about their emotional state here in this moment. Any description. And the man and the wife were both naked and really happy about it. The man and the wife were both naked and they felt pretty confident about themselves. You know, man and the wife were both naked and they were looking forward to their life together. You know, there's so many ways that the author could have described the state of the man and the woman both being together and being naked. But what he says is, and they were not ashamed. Because where this will go is to a place and a pattern that leads us to shame. This is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. This is the pattern that we see in all of our human relationships, that inevitably sin leads to shame and shame leads to more sin. And around and around and around we go. I'm revealing the pattern from the beginning, so hopefully you see it as we walk through this story. From sin to shame to sin to shame to sin to shame. So let's jump into this story as it picks up in the following chapter, in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other animal the Lord God made. The serpent is kind of the device that the writer in Genesis uses to begin to pull at the threads of the couple's relationship with each other, but also at the threads of their relationship with God. And so the serpent says to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? 
Because at this point, the serpent and the woman have been having a conversation, and the woman's like, yeah, God kind of created all this, and he said we can't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. What the serpent does in this moment is to begin to insert a little bit of doubt, to suggest, to infer that the woman couldn't actually trust what God was saying, that in some way, God wasn't being fully truthful with her, that there was something that God wasn't revealing or disclosing or permitting the woman to participate in that was actually going to be good for her. And so, in short, God's holding out on her, and there's actually a better life if you'll just ignore what God told you. Now, this is the pattern behind anything that we long for, anything that we are inclined to pursue that we know actually isn't right. There's this distrust that what God says actually isn't the fullest life possible. That on the other side of God's rules, there's actually more life. But God's, God hasn't been truthful with us. God has been holding out on us. And so we need to take matters into our own hands. We need to gain control for ourselves. And we need to press through the limitations that God has placed in our lives. Now, for any of us that are parents or have been parents, you know that there is so much more you know than your kid can know. And there's so much that you know that they can't know that sometimes it's not even worth explaining why they can't do what you've told them that they can't do. It's too long of a conversation because you don't understand all of the implications of the decision or the choice or the action that you're trying to engage in. Just trust me, right? This is how this goes. No, because I don't have time to explain it. I just need you to trust me, but it's ultimately for your own good. And what the serpent does in this moment is he starts to plant seeds of doubt in the relationship between the woman and God. That I know this isn't what's happening here. God doesn't want what's best from you. God's holding out on you. And so the serpent kind of corrects what the woman says about what God says. And he points to this. He says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, this tree, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's life beyond life that God has been holding out from you. It's actually going to be great for you to go to this. This is kind of the pattern that we fall into anytime we begin to sin. Is we think we know what's best for us. We can manage the consequences of the choices that we make. We can handle the repercussions and that we know better than God does about what it is that we want to do. And so, this is what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, it says she took some and she ate it. Now, behind every sin is one of two motivations. Fear or desire. And sometimes both. Behind every sin, and you see it in this story, fear and desire. The fear in this instance was, what if God isn't being truthful with me? What if I'm missing out on something better than what I have available to me? I can eat of every tree except for one. That's pretty good. But if I could eat of every tree, that would be even better. I'm fearful that God's not being honest with me, that God's trying to limit my life or my ability to engage in my freedom, which in our culture, might be our highest value. I want to be free to do what I want in the old time, right? This is how we think and feel because we are the ultimate authority in our life. We can't trust God. God's holding out on us. There's a fear that God's not being honest 
Or there's a longing, there's a desire, there's a need to gain, experience, acquire. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. We kind of know what it looks like to walk through the grocery store and to choose over certain fruits or not. Your bananas got black spots, you just keep moving, right? Unless you're making banana bread, which is a strange thing, but whatever. Not making banana bread, but the using the really black bananas for banana bread. I'm sure there's a reason, and someone you will send me an email explaining why. But like, we avoid fruit that looks bad because it doesn't trigger the desire piece in us. This is why marketing looks the way that it looks. It promises you an aspirational something an aspirational version of yourself, an aspirational experience, something that is just quite out of reach. Have you noticed, like with the car commercials, the car commercials, when they're trying to sell you a vehicle, they never show you in like stop and go traffic. Look, I promise it's true. You're always opening up into a brand new countryside. You're on an open road with no cars, no traffic. You are free. You're in the mountains. You're in an unpopulated city. Wherever it is, you are moving towards, what's the word? Freedom. It has you moving towards freedom. And so if you'll just buy this car, you can have unlimited freedom in your life. So it's the avoidance or the fear of being contained and controlled and then the desire, the longing for gaining what it is you feel like will finally, truly make you happy. Behind every sin, fear or desire. And so the woman, kind of encountering this, she takes some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Why? Because, well, clearly you should be eating this fruit because it'll actually be better for you than what God says. Then, what happens? The eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The story starts, they're both naked and unashamed. And then sin enters the picture. They fail to trust God. They fail to limit their own thirst for desire. They fail to kind of adhere to the rules and the limitations. They allow fear to get the better of them. And they do what God has asked them not to do. What is the result? Not life beyond life. Not everything that they had been hoping for. No. Now this recognition of being exposed, of being vulnerable, of being human and mortal and broken, all the things we're going to celebrate on Ash Wednesday, Start in this story. Come on, we know this story. We've seen this pattern in our own lives. We convince ourselves that if we do that thing that we know we shouldn't do, engage in that moment or that experience or have that you know, conversation or relationship with that person, it'll actually be better for us than avoiding that. And then you do it and it never ends up being as good as you wanted it to be. It never ends up living up to the hype or the allure of whatever it was that you were chasing or seeking. This is why I often have an experience when people come to meet with me for pastoral care, particularly when it relates to a series of choices that they've made in their life that have created kind of like 
calamity and chaos. They begin to tell me their story. And then about halfway through, I'm able to finish the rest of the story. And they're like, oh, how did you know? Because every story has different details, but the same pattern. Sin is not unique and special. Your sin is not unique and special. My sin is not unique and special. It follows this same pattern over and over and over again. And what Scripture is trying to get us to do is to break that pattern and break that cycle and live into something different. And so Adam and Eve experienced kind of the harsh reality of living into the sin. Oh, this doesn't actually get us what we thought it would get us. And now I actually don't feel all that great about standing up here naked. I'm going to need to fashion an outfit of some sort. Then what happens next? This kind of point in the story, God has not been present since he created them. But as God does, typically on the heels of choices that we make that end up blowing up in our life or blowing up our life, God comes walking through. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Cool, casual, no rush, just an evening stroll post-dinner with the dog. God comes walking through the story. And what happens after sin? Shame. They recognize their nakedness. They fashion clothes to cover their nakedness, their vulnerability. And then when God gets close, what do they do? They hide. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is why for many of us it is hard to break these patterns of sin and shame. Because the moment that we get caught up in them, we don't want to tell anybody about them. Like with any pattern of addiction, the way that it begins to kind of rework itself or, you know, break the cycle is the acknowledgement that there is an issue, that there is a problem. It is naming, not hiding, what's going on in our life. But what's so hard about this? Come on, we know. When we've screwed up, when we've made a mistake, when we know that we have sinned or wronged someone or caused hurt in our life or in our relationships or in our world, we want to hide. We want to act like nothing happened. We don't want to acknowledge it because it's painful. Because to acknowledge it causes us to step out and to be vulnerable and to expose ourselves to the guilt and the shame that we feel, to stand naked before God and to confront the impact of our choices. And this is what I think is so interesting. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I think for many of us, when we're caught in these patterns and these cycles, God is whispering, calling out to us, where are you? Where are you? Acknowledging that we have hidden ourselves. Acknowledging that we are no longer available and accessible to, to that relationship with God. Where are you? Where are you? And then... The man responds, and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. That's shame. I'm bad, and I know I'm bad, and I didn't want you to know it too. This is the pattern. Sin 
into shame and to more sin. Well, I, I can't come clean, so I'm just going to double down on the decisions that I made and ride this into the very end. I can't name it. I can't acknowledge it. Maybe if I just, we don't speak about it in our marriage for the next 10 years, it'll just go away. That doesn't break the pattern. It leaves you caught in it, in the presence of shame, sadness, fear. And then God asks another question. He said, who told you that you were naked? I mean, come on, God knows. God knew where the man and the woman were. But he needs to create a new pattern, not of hiding, not of guilt and shame and retribution, but of loving invitation back out and back into relationships so something new can be created. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you? Did you? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And again, the pattern's still in process in this moment. And so what does the man do? From sin to shame to more sin. The woman did it. It's her fault. We blame. That is one of our responses to shame besides hiding is we blame others. We're defensive. We protect ourselves at all costs. It is one of the ways that we cover up our nakedness and vulnerability, metaphorically speaking. It's either you hide in the trees so nobody sees you or you go on the counterattack and point out all of the reasons why it's not your fault. You had good cause. You were justified. So it's the woman's fault. She gave me the fruit. So then God goes to the woman and says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And what does the woman do? From sin to shame to sin. The serpent tricked me and I ate it. This is the pattern. From sin into shame into sin into shame over and over and over we go. And so when Paul is writing to the Romans, when he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, this is the pattern that he's describing. This process of not trusting God, of being kind of tricked by fear and desire into making decisions that don't ultimately serve our best interest. And then because of the consequences of those decisions, living under the weight of shame and not naming it, and not acknowledging it, and not going to God with it, but hiding from God, pulling back, and then creating more chaos and conflict in your relationships. We all have versions of this. Being a pastor doesn't make you immune from these things. It is really easy to want to justify your actions or your decisions, especially if you kind of have that wiring in your mind where you could have been a great lawyer or you are a great lawyer and you can construct a really like eloquent defense of your process and your pattern of behavior and you do it in a way that you can raise your tone and point your finger and it kind of causes people to cower and you convince yourself that like everything's okay because no one's willing to stand up to kind of that hair dryer effect that you have on people you're still caught in the pattern I mean, this is some of the like, hardest work that we do is one, as followers of Christ, but two, as people in relationships. Is when you make a mistake, when you sin, when you hurt someone you care about to go, ugh, that was, that was my bad. That was my bad. I'm sorry. I did this, and I will stand here and 
be confronted by the impact of my choices and the ways that that hurts you and all of the ways that it makes me feel guilty and feel shameful and now I feel naked and vulnerable in front of you or in this relationship or before this group of friends because it hurts to acknowledge our own humanity and to acknowledge our own brokenness. But what we can trust, though, is is the way out. Have you ever experienced a really great apology? Like a really great confession and request for forgiveness? Where someone was just took it all on the chin and just named everything that they had done to hurt you? Or maybe you've been the one who did that? And the freedom and the relief that you feel, even if it's painful and even if it takes time to work through and to process through, Some of the greatest moments in my life were after some of the biggest mistakes that I've made. And I wasn't always quick to come out of hiding or to like step past my shame and to name everything that I'd done. But when you're able to confess and when you're able to ask for forgiveness, it unlocks you and it frees you from this pattern that we're caught in. And so the tools that we have talked about over the last six weeks They are components to help us break this pattern. The things we pay attention to, the stories that we tell ourselves, the ways that we acknowledge and process and communicate our emotions, our attachment styles and our default wirings for the relationships that we're in. All of these are tools to integrate our minds and to renew them and to experience the transformation that can be found in Christ. And so this is my prayer for us, that we would be people who wouldn't stay in hiding, who wouldn't stay gripped in that pattern of sin and shame and sin and shame, but we would be willing to step forward, say, God, here I am. And all of the ways that I'm imperfect and all of my flaws and vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and God, help me to become more like you. This would be my hope. This is why it is such good news that we start the season of Lent. Because Lent is a season of transformation. It's a season of acknowledging our humanness and our brokenness and then engaging with spiritual disciplines and tools that help us to draw closer to Christ and to experience transformation in our life. And so, friends, I'm excited to celebrate this Lent season with you. Let me pray for our time together this morning. Gracious God, thank you for who you've called us to be and the presence of your spirit with us as we move towards that. God, unlock us from this pattern of sin and shame and help us to step into the fullness of living into the example of your son. God, we are grateful for the ways that you love us and the, great, the ways that you are at work with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.